Welcome to the Yorkshire Grit Podcast. Tackling some of the biggest issues in men's mental health. Right, welcome back. This is Series 2, Episode 3. We have got um, uh, Scotland's very own Braveheart, <laughs> Callum Skinner, namesake of Mike Skinner, my idol of the streets. Do you know the streets? I do, yeah, yeah. Some good tracks on there. Yeah, some... Uh, <laughs> it's deep. I, I used to love Mike Skinner. I still do, to be fair. So... Uh, look, we've been meaning to get you here for a while, mm. um, and I'm trying to go on, I wouldn't say it's a pilgrimage, but everyone that I said yes to, and then I fucked over, or not fucked over, like, forgot about whatever, I'm trying to make amends and go through this list, so it is really good to have you here, mate. So thank you for driving over the M62. No problem. Uh, today from Manchester. The Yorkshire Great Podcast. As always, when we uh, get someone on for people, because you're actually a track cyclist. Mm. Sorry, no, you're not a track cyclist. You are an entrepreneur. You are a human being. Mm. You're not just a cyclist. Sorry, yeah. it's a bit disrespectful that it's No, you. no, it's fine. Like, um, you know, I've, I've been labelled a cyclist ever since I was 15, I guess. Um, would, would you say that's, if you were to introduce yourself now, mm. how would you introduce yourself? Uh, just like anyone else, like my name's Callum and make up your own mind as to whether you like me or not, I guess. It's, um, I, I want to, you know, I guess the best example is like I've 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 been working um, since COVID hit. I've been working in a in a supermarket just because um, you know I'm not very good at sitting at home and doing nothing. Um, I didn't tell anyone what I did and managed to stay under the radar for a couple of months. Mm. And and that's the way I like it. Yeah. Um, you know, people change when they find out that you've got Olympic gold. Um, and I think it's better to get the lay of the lands before they know. Born in Glasgow. Mm-hmm. And then you said you moved around a little bit up in Scotland. Yeah. So we, I was born in Edinburgh, so we've both got that in common. And then where did the love of, yeah, tell us a little bit about, tell us a little bit about Scotland. Um, tell us a little bit about, you know, your childhood. Um, and then kind of, you know, to be an Olympian, you've got to have a bit of a fucked up mindset. <laughs> a special breed, I think. Was there a, a defining moment in your childhood? Was there a kind of... Um, I, I'd, so first of all, like being a kind of Scottish expat, most people have to put up with the running Visit Scotland advert that every Scotsman outside of Scotland seems to rely upon. Um, but uh, and it's a place I'd like to go back to and would like to live there one day. But you know, as a kid, I was never sporty, particularly in in a school sense, in a club sense, I was. Um, but PE never really appealed to me that much. Um, I think when you're looking into doing something, you know, whether it's football or, or anything that PE normally does, I wanted to do it properly. And to just kind of say, okay, guys, we're going to play a game of Lounders today. It didn't have that level of detail that I was interested in. So I, I kind of uh, always kind of viled against it. I was one of those kids that kind of forgot their kit on purpose. Yeah. Um, and then eventually managed to get over it because um, I negotiated with the teachers that I was that I was too fit and that I should just focus on my cycling career, <laughs> um, which got me out of running around the park. But sport came along at just the right time for me, especially getting good at cycling because, you know, when I was uh, in primary school, when I was living in, in Dunfermline, um, you know, I'm, I'm dyslexic and it was undiagnosed at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think because I'm, you know, I've been told I'm quite articulate, quite engaging. Um, I've got good verbal vocabulary, all that kind of stuff. Um, the, the further along I got in primary school, the more my teachers thought I was being lazy um, or intentionally just, you know, not not applying myself to my written work at all. Um, same with maths and stuff like that. And what happened over that time was my, my confidence uh, just kind of dipped. Um, I became really kind of quiet, really inside myself. When I went to high school in Edinburgh, because we were moving around schools and moving around cities so much, it was it was difficult to have that established group of pals. You know, you've always got those kids that have gone to nursery together, gone to primary school together, gone to high school together, how, and then all that kind of stuff. How come you're moving around so much? Um, Dad's job or something? Or? No, it's... I, <sighs> It's a, it's a difficult question. I think like, um, so my mum and dad sp- uh, split up when I was six years old. Tell you what, me and you have got so much in common. <laughs> I'm dyslexic. Yeah. I'm a cyclist. Mm. I love coffee. I'm from Scotland. Yeah. My mum and dad broke up when I was six. <laughs> we are, yeah. And, you know, I, I think I think in all intensive purposes, like having a breakup when you're that age is, 
it probably makes it a little bit easier. I think, you know, I, I do sympathise a little bit with kids who their parents pick up uh, when they're in their teens or something like that. It's probably a lot more difficult, especially when your dad comes out as gay, which was what happened in, in my situation. Wow. Um, uh, but when you're six, you just accept it and you're like, cool, let's just keep going. But you, when you were six, you obviously didn't understand homosexuality then. Was it, was it only when you were a little bit older? Yeah. Um, I, I think, you know, I, I think I, you know, pretty much through my entire life, I always felt like a little bit of a, an outsider. Um, I, I never, ever thought homosexuality was, was wrong. I never adhered to that argument. Um, my dad was just my dad. Um, but, but going back to your earlier point of why we moved around a bit after that, after that, um, breakup between my parents, my mum had to make ends meet, which meant she had to go and earn a living, um, as a single parent. And, and that meant going where the work was. What did she do? Uh, accountancy, which is weird given she's got a dyslexic son. I don't think that's weird. Well, I mean, I'm pretty bad at it. <laughs> but, um, God, that's, t that's some instruction that. Mm. That's quite a powerful introduction. And then would you say that cycling was it's such a it's such a cliche because cycling is such a he who goes over the line first wins. Mm. It's such a tangible you've won. There isn't more to it than that. Mm -hmm. Was that your kind of fuck you to the world? This is what I'm gonna do. I, look, I can't read, I can't write, I've got this going on at home, I'm moving around like fuck. This is what I want to do. I'm not sure. I think. I think even at that point, I don't think I had the confidence to be able to to do that. Um, you know, I had a very good in high school was when I started to flourish, um, and that that came around for two reasons. Like my my mum got me diagnosed with with dyslexia. We got the test and all that kind of thing. Um, so I realised I wasn't stupid. Um, just needed a bit more help. Um, and. You know, I, th I think sport gave me that platform to realise that I could be good at something. Um, and that was what kickstarted it. And, you know, uh, I got rid of my beanie hat and my headphones, which I pretty much wore the entire time and tried to shy away from everyone to being really involved in the community, getting some good mates and, um, well, not getting some good mates. I, I, I stayed with the same group of mates I had. Um, but just getting to know everyone better and getting more involved in that in that kind of school life um, in a more traditional sense. Um, sport gave me that platform of, of knowing that I was good at something before I got the dyslexia test to have confidence to see that I could have something to offer to the world, I guess. And then why the bike? Uh, a couple of reasons. Um, I love speed. Um you know, I, I, and I think, you know, when, when you're young and you don't have a, a car license or mobile license, whatever, it's it's a great way to get that fixed, especially on the track. You know, your 48 degree bankings, you, if you chase the motorbike, you can go up to 80, 90 k's an hour. It's almost like a kind of wall of death. And as someone who's a little bit of a thrill seeker, that was that was what caught me onto it. Um, the community aspect as well, like, uh, you know, my mum was, uh, my mum was really sporty and my dad, uh, my brother really takes after my dad. They're more about kind of drinking, smoking, partying, all that kind of stuff, um, which is, which is a nice balance to have. Um, but at the same time, I didn't necessarily have any kind of male role models who were sporty. Um, and I found that in the community of track cycling, um, I did rugby as well, but, you know, the, the format of training for sprint cycling lends itself to that community because, You'll do an effort um, which lasts about a minute max, um, and then you spend half an hour sitting around recovering and ready to do the next one, which which fosters this environment of of socialization yeah, and, so, and, yeah. and camaraderie. Um, so I, I find a whole bunch of like sporty kind of father figures there. Um, it's quite. It's people obviously. There's road cycling. There's track cycling. Did road cycling never float your boat? No, no. Um, well. If, yeah, I guess I did one. I've done one road race in my life. I didn't didn't necessarily enjoy it, and and I think the other thing that pushed me towards sprinting was that you had multiple opportunities in a stable, measurable environment to see if you were getting faster or slower. So if you do a road race, you might do a six-hour ride, and it's pretty hard to tell at the end of it whether you're pinging or not. Track sprinting. You've got five, six opportunities, and especially when you get on the pro team, you've got you know twenty different metrics measured, you know a thousand times a second. You know if you're getting faster or not, and it was always about trying to get faster and faster and faster. And then finally, it was probably because I was asthmatic, um, and endurance sports didn't lend themselves to me because 
you know, if you're if you're going up a hill, you can't pop out your inhaler and just take a little it's, break. It's too quick. A sprint's too quick to get asthma. Almost. Yeah. Or well, at least you can you can get out of breath. You can get wheezy, and then you can. It doesn't matter. You got half an hour to the cover. Yeah. yeah. It's perfect. Um, with track cycling, did you find it quite um, homely in a way? Mm. Yeah. No. It, it definitely became a source of stability. Um. Which, which again th- came through that community. I had people, you know, like my, my mum, because I did so many different club sports, my mum was quite unwilling to invest funds in, in, in a sport that she thought cheap. I might not stick with. It's not cheap. It's not like football or running. Yeah. And, and, and what I found was I, was I was met by incredible kindness and generosity and, and you know, not to say it was all material, but you had, you had people that would back you, whether that was as a coach or get, lending equipment, driving you places, helping you out. It was amazing. And then you obviously, you're obviously good. Mm. You're obviously talented. Mm. Um, and then it kind of, uh, you know, it ended up with the Olympics. But how did that? How did that go from? I want to get better. I want to get faster. To getting on all these programs, o- ODP, all that sort of thing. Yeah, it, it didn't happen immediately. Um, you know, there was only two spots on the on the British team for Scots, and um, they they picked another guy over me for the first uh, year, year and a half. Um, so I was always kind of like fighting to get in the team, I guess. Um, which, by the way, I think is a, a good experience for an athlete to have is to is to have an experience of fighting for selection or fighting to get on a team. I think that gives I think you that's real, healthy. Yeah, it gives you a real kind of grit and makes you appreciate what you've got. I think if if it's kind of handed to you on a platter, whether that be, um, you know, your parents giving you everything from a young age to always getting selection, um, it means that when things do get tough, which they inevitably will as an athlete, you're not well prepared for it. Um, to go through that as a younger age, um, when you've got that endless enthusiasm to be able to carry you through, I think is is, is a good step. Um, but no, I, I'd say the, the biggest opportunity came um, when I was 17 years old. Um, and and just to fast forward a bit as a kid, you know, having gone from this recluse, um, shy kid, I was now doing pretty much everything at school. Yeah. Um, you know, whether that be drama, uh, you know, doing well academically at this point, um, you know, had uni- university offers on the table. Like, I was doing pretty much anything and everything. Did um, you ever go off the rails? Did you ever have that moment where you just got hooked up and no, I, shouting I at your so. mom and like, why, you know, uh, you know, we've got to move around. <laughs> no, there was definitely moments where like, um, when I was younger, I was, I was, you know, pretty upset to be leaving my friends again or something like that. Because um, we moved around a lot, born Edinburgh, London, Newcastle, yeah. different schools, and it really affected me mm. hugely. And being dyslexic really affected me. Yeah, it's, it's, it still does now. Yeah, and well, on on the dyslexic point, but but you know, when I had that confidence, it didn't seem as much of an issue because it's like I'm outgoing, I can make new friends, I can gel into new environments. But the the, the opportunity came along when I was um, 17 to to go down to Manchester to train full time. Um, and I actually missed the application deadline because I got the long date in my head. Yeah. Luckily, they uh, but, saw through that. Um, but did the track cycling really turn you on? Mm, mm-hmm. By 17, 18, were you like, look, I am all in? Were you as obsessed? No, I wasn't as, all in. You no, weren't all in? No. Because with road cycling, I get this feeling that people become all in. Mm. Obsessed. Mm-hmm. What? Aero? Diet? It's addictive. Yeah. Were you not at that stage yet? No, I thought I could do it all. Like I thought I could, you know, excel academically. I thought I could, you know, do other bits and pieces, be sociable, do all that other kind of stuff as well. Um, I would say I was committed, but I wasn't all in. Um, and that was something that, that British Cycling really forced upon me because when they offered me a place in the team, um, I was kind of like, well, can I do university alongside? Um, and they went, no, you're you're here to be an athlete, and that's yeah. it. Which is which is fair enough. Yeah, um, I, I don't think it's where the sports or any sport is heading towards now. I think they're they're looking to have more balanced athletes because the thing is, if you put your eggs in, all into one basket and uh, things start going badly, you've not got much else to pull upon. Um, but at the time, it worked for me. They had this really talented, multidisciplinary, in all senses of the word, kid, and they narrowed that down fiercely. Narrowed it down into one thing, which is your physical asset on the bike and. London 2012, Tokyo 2016 is your target. So tell us about getting to those targets. Tell us about being picked, representing your country, that bubble, that mm. those camps. Tell us about, you know, that to me sounds pressure cooker mm. and I would probably, you know, wouldn't handle that very well. 
But yeah, to start with, it, it is it is a pressure cooker. Like we're all um, back in the day, we were all in one kind of I want to call it compound, but one block of flats, um, all different disciplines, um, and and basically what always jarred me a little bit was that your entire social network was based on people that were in the team or basically lived in this block of flats in Fallowfield. Um, so you lived, worked, socialized with each other every day um, and everyone wants to get to the top. Um, so it is it is a real pressure cooker and, and it, it's would hard you, to branch out and have balance in that. Situation. Would you call them friends then? Yeah, would, no, absolutely. Really? Yeah. Um, See, I disagree with that. I don't think you have friends in cycling. Do you not? No. I think it's more... Because you can't, because... I don't know, I've got a weird way of defining it. Because for me, a friend is someone who I could ring up at 3am if I mm. was out one night and I'd lost my bank card or, oh, can you pick me up? Or, um, it, Yeah, I, I define it differently. Mm. In cycling, I never really had that. Yeah. It's more, no one would go out that much on a limb for you. Mm. And for me, if you're going to be one of my mates, I want you to, you know, bloody hell, you know, let's yeah. bleed together type thing. Yeah, I, I, I think that grew over time. Um, but but I would disagree and say that it, it did exist in, in my situation. Um, Which is really good. Yeah, like maybe it was the maybe it was the, you know, the culture within the team. But say if, if someone got a selection... Um, over someone else and it was a bit dodgy there was at least you know three four guys myself included um who would say that that selection is long and we're sticking together on that even though it doesn't impact me personally mm -hmm. you've picked the long guy um and and even quite candid discussions amongst amongst the group where it would be like if if someone got a selection that that you know arguably they thought was long like we we talked quite openly about saying you would give that up because it's about the team going the fastest it possibly can. It's not about you excelling. Um, and I think that came through adversity because everyone turns on the TV at the Olympics, expects Team GB to win. Yes. We were struggling to even qualify for the Olympic Games, um, which included like, you know, going to every single World Cup, trying to scrape points everywhere. Um, so so we, we couldn't afford to let personal ambition flourish. It was about the team going the fastest the it could because goal. otherwise yeah. we wouldn't get to the Olympic Games. And this is the team sprint. Yeah. Which was you. Uh, Jason and Phil. Jason Kenny, Philip Hines. And Phil Hines. Yeah. God. I, and then how does that work? So it's, you all do, is it, you, you do a lap each? Yeah. So um, we set off as a three and we lose a man every lap until uh, my job was to finish the, finish the clock after three laps. God, talk us through that. Like, what is, you know, so you're at Rio. Mm. Do you sleep the night before? Yeah, actually, like a baby. The night Do you before. take sleeping tablets or out? No, no, not at all. Um, Would, can can you drink, or were you not bothered? No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't drink. Um, what forbidden to drink? It's in, I think no smoking, no drinking, no snow sports is in the contract. But um, uh, it, we'd pull each other up on it. Um, I remember, you know, maybe a few months before the game, um, I went to go and watch some rugby with my girlfriend at the time. Uh, I got photographed with a stein of beer in my hand, and uh, Phil went nuts. What? And that was two months before? Uh, no, maybe three, four months before. You And he went nuts? Yeah, yeah. Lately so. Why? Because it's four months away and it's probably a Sunday. We didn't have, we didn't have the slack. And, and to sum up my position in the team as well, it's, um, you well, know... I, like, for me, sorry to interrupt you. For me, I don't know, yeah, maybe I'm just not... For, for me, that's a, a balanced... That's mm. a good thing. Mm. Like I read Philip Gilbert drinks, not every day, but he has he has one beer, you know, and Alistair, you've met Alistair Brownlee, yeah. he likes a, yeah, I find that, I don't know, I just find that, you know, I would think that that would probably help you. Yeah, and that was my argument to Phil at the time. Yeah. In retrospect, he was correct. Um, because, you know, to to sum up our winning margin, it was, it was, you know, let's say a 42 second, 43 second event. Our winning margin was one tenth of a second. And that's been 10 years worth of work leading up to that one day. One tenth of a second? Yeah. Fuck. That is, that is next level. I can't get my head around that. And, and to, to, uh, to sum up my position in the team as well, it's, uh, you know, Chris Horry retired in 2012. I was taken over from him. Um, it took me two years to break into that team. So about 2014, I started getting chances. Um, but consistently, even though it was a team event, I was the one letting the side down. Because Why? 
well, because Phil Hines would take off the first lap and he'd set a world best time for the first lap. Jason Kenny would do the second lap. We the whole team would still be in first place. I God, do that is pressure. That yeah, that is apps. Yeah, Fuck. but I I do the tenth quickest lap of the competition, and overall that would make us sixth. Because even though it's a team event, on the timesheet it tells you what placing the team is at when. So it was always very evident to me that I was the weak link in the team and it was my performance that was inhibiting these two Olympic champions to go on to win more. So it's not just you letting yourself down, you're letting down these yeah. two other guys who've turned... When So when... Who set off first? Phil. Phil. So when Phil would set off, how... Do you not get dropped? Well, that's the thing. I was getting dropped consistently. Um, and then essentially you're doing a, a team just event to get by back yourself. On, just to get back on. You wouldn't even get back on. There's no Once you're dropped, you don't get back on. So you have to basically... How do you train for that then? How do you train not to get spat? Well, I guess the, the best bit was that we, you know, I had the two perfect guys in training to follow every single day. Um, and, you know, I had a few oh, issues. Oh, man, that's just... Sorry, sorry to interrupt you. That, that's really... No, the, the pressure That's was That's really mind every day turning up knowing that if I don't perform, these two guys are going to be pissed, but, the, but they're dropping me every time they kick. Yeah. Yeah, that would fry my head, that. And the thing is, if, if, if let's say by 10 seconds in of that race, if you know you're not on, you know you're not going to get back on. And then you just go, look, I've, I've been dropped. Just but you have to keep going. You have to keep going, otherwise we might not qualify. You might not get the team. You have to scrape that position, whether it's a sixth, eighth, tenth. You have to scrape that position. But even though you put yourself down, it obviously came good. It did in the end, and it, you know it's kind of you got silver, was it? Yeah, uh, no, we got gold in the team event. Yeah, at, at Rio. At Rio, but we talk at, us through that. That must have been like that. Just talk us through that morning, that day, just the feelings, you know, really try, like a humanistic mm. perspective. Yeah, really. I guess it was quite pessimistic to, to, I mean, we were going in and saying we'll be lucky to get a bronze. Because you've sat here and told me, yeah, you've be, you haven't been negative, mm. but you haven't shown me, you haven't come across as a guy who's massively confident. Mm. I, would, I would have gone, fucking all right. <laughs> <laughs> this ain't looking good. And all of a sudden you've got gold. Yeah. So you're either playing a really good game, Callum, <laughs> and you're a typical cyclist yeah. or you, or something just went good on the night. I think it's a mixture of both. Like I think naturally, uh, like being, singing my own praises doesn't come naturally to me, particularly. Are you quite hard on yourself? Um, yeah, I, I remember like I was really close to my head teacher. He was a really good guy, and um, and he always said like you're not you're not being honest with yourself. You're not being honest with other people about how good you are. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting that vibe. And um, I don't know. It's uh, you know maybe it's the same as working in that supermarket, not telling anyone who I am. It's just it's just not part of my makeup. I'd rather be valued upon who I am as a person versus my achievements. And that's been a long journey to get to that point, which we'll probably get into later. But. You know, going back to the Olympic Village, um, the pressure was massively on. Like, uh, we take four guys, only three get to the right. So we're not, even though you're selected a month or two before. Still not guaranteed. Selection's not actually made until the night before. Um, and would Phil and this Jason Kenny guy, would they be looking at you on the morning? Or would they be... Like, fucking don't fuck up here, mate. Because <laughs> we're flying. No, they were really good, actually. Um... I think there was one, there was probably one occasion where, you know, uh, Phil, Phil's got, Phil's German, he has a German sense of humour, he goes quite close to the bone, it's kind of what I like about him. Um, but I remember we flew all, to, all the way to New Zealand, I got dropped, and then we had to fly all the way back home. Oh. So Phil did one lap, and he was understandably pretty pissed. I mean, he wasn't really, because he, he went off and when it became a tourist, he went to go and see Hobbiton and all that kind of shit, so he was loving it. Um, but he's, he's, he made a joke, um, and, and that cut me up. And, you know, a, a lot of that time, it was, I was really angry after, the, after those situations. Like I'd smash shit up in private. I'd disappear for a little while. Um, but on the whole, those boys understood that they were not going to get the best out of me if they treated me like shit. They had to provide the best training environment possible. They had to provide the best race environment possible. To get the best out of you. Because at that point, I was the only guy on the team that was going to, that was anywhere, you know, not anywhere near, but I was their best prospect. And ultimately they wanted to win. So either through selfish ambition or 
collective will, they made it happen. So the the clock goes off, bang. Mm. That gun goes off, bang. All morning, all day, you're like, this is the Olympic final year. This is it. Your phone's probably going mental. Mm. You probably turned it off. Mm. Um, what's going through your mind? Just, oh, I've clipped my shoes in. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, d- uh, don't burp. Uh, uh, have I gone to the toilet? You know, don't get dropped. Like, how do you cope with that? Because you, you just said to me, don't get dropped, don't get dropped. I kept on getting dropped, kept on getting dropped. Uh, and then it's the final. Yeah. How does that, how do you do that? Well, I think just to just to build up the pressure and the expectation a little bit more, it's probably worth the context of it. So we, we finished in sixth place at the World Championships four months before the Olympics. Everyone had completely written us off. Like we were doing interviews at the holding camp and the journalists were saying, are you looking forward to Leo? Instead of like, are you going to beat the Kiwis and all that kind of stuff? Like we were completely written off. Um, and we were the first event for the team. And every... Every, you know, every sports journalist, what makes a good story is when is Team GB's golden run going to come to an end? So we were the first event. We were the test case. Um, and we were the the underdogs. Um, you know, we had a lot of time to make up. Uh, but the, the, the people always say to me, like, what were you thinking on the start line? And, and to be honest, that's probably like the least interesting bit because there wasn't actually that much going on. Like, I just had this mindset of give it everything you've absolutely got to get on Jason's wheel. Like you need, you need to give, you need to stress every single muscle and sinew to, to get on that wheel. And if you get on that wheel, we got a chance of at least a bronze. And, you know, maybe that gets conditioned into you over time because, you know, every time you go on the track, you want to do a, a really standard performance. You want to, you want to try and excel on the track. And that's something we've been, we've done thousands of thousands of times before. And a track's a track. And honestly, when you're on that start line, all this let's call it bullshit about trying to fill Chris Hoy's shoes, trying to make it up to Phil and Jason, whether your parents are in the stands, you know, how many people are watching on the TV, it doesn't matter. But when you're on that track and you're looking forwards, you could be in Manchester and you're giving it 100% like you do in training. And um, in the first ride, we took the Olympic record. And and for me personally, that's when I truly started to believe that we could win it. Um, But then the Kiwis took the Olympic record back in the second ride. Um, but what was interesting was that, I don't know if Phil did this intentionally, but he he did a fairly conservative lap in the first ride, um, which made it easier for me to get on. In the second ride, he went a little bit quicker. In the third ride, he went, you know, arguably as quick as he did in London when I got dropped and still managed to stay on. The Kiwis made the slightest of, the slightest of mistakes. If you watch it, you wouldn't be able to pick it out. They just, you know, went from the black line to the red line a little bit. Really? And that's a tenth of a second. Fuck. So you got to concentrate on this line as well. Yeah. Oh no. Yeah. So once you're on, the mindset is bend the elbows, tuck in the elbows, get aero smooth because you want to keep it as smooth and as fluid as possible. You want to be conserving that energy so you can give it absolutely everything as soon as Jason's out the way. And how much does it hurt? It's it's fucking painful. Yeah. It's, I'd say the kilo is probably the best event to sum that up. So that's four laps of the track by yourself. Um, I'm not a vomiter. A lot of guys are. Um, but I've, I've I'm not a vomit. <laughs> but, <laughs> like uh, it's a prerequisite. Yeah, but it, it, in the last half lap of a kilo, I've had the darkness come in from the side of my vision, slowly come in, and you and you're and, and in the last couple of meters, you're starting to think, "Am I going to survive this? Am I going to stay up?" So it's quite common. It's a common thing. That- it's what it's what makes a sprinter. Like if you can't go from where you are now with resting heart rate to 240 beats per minute. 240? Yeah. If you can't go to 240 beats per minute in the space of 20 seconds, you're not a spinner. I think the, I think the most I've ever done is like two, 200. Well, let's say whatever your max yeah, heart yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's resting to maximum. That's what a spinner is. It's not about, you know, it's about using... It's just fast twitch, isn't it? Yeah, it's about getting all of your energy out in that space of time. And was a lot of that... Do you have to do a lot of weights? Yeah, and that, and that's where, you know, I, I struggled quite a lot. I'm not. I'm not... Very good at squatting and squatting and squat? spinning. What did you squat? My maximum's like 120 and that's shit. That's really shit. There's, um, you know, uh, you know, we're talking guys that can rarely push like 240. Shit. Um, but I've, I've got a pretty weak back. So, um, you know, that's probably one of the keys to our success. I had a really good gym coach. Um, so what were you good at then? So what, so, you know, cause you've been quite 
Yeah, I'm trying to. F- yeah. It's, so, so, um, so, you know, you must have been good at something. You must have been. You know, what was your talent? What was your? Because you said, yeah, I wasn't great at getting on his wheel. Wasn't very strong. Didn't mm. have a very good back. Mm. What was your? What was? What was Callum Skinner's? What were you known for? What would your coaches say? Well, just as an interesting point, if you're good at everything, it's actually quite a concerning place to be because you don't know how to get better. So oh, the that, thing that's a quote, <laughs> Fred. That's the that's what this episode is called. No, and you see it with some young kids. It's like they do everything hundred percent right. So then you're like, where's the space to go? It's like so, th- this guy eats well. He does well in the gym. He yeah, trains hundred percent. But anyway, so back to me about what I'm good at. <laughs> your bath's already full. How can you get better? Yeah. Yeah. Whereas I had tons of stuff to work on. And um, that was probably part of the challenge. I guess I guess the stuff I was good at was mental resilience. Like traveling around the world and obviously being the guy that's letting the team down isn't easy. Um, trying to take on that Chris Hoy mantle that I had labeled on me since I was about 15. That's tough. Wasn't easy. Um, What's he like as a guy? Yeah, really good, really supportive. He actually um, had dinner with us in the village the night before we were due to ride and went, um, you know what, boys, you can do it. And uh, truthfully, I can be a bit of a cynic, and I was kind of like, yeah, mate, the sport's moved on, yada, yada. But he, he instilled a little bit of belief. That um, must have been in inspiring. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wish I could switch off the cynicism in my head at that point, but he did. He did. There was an element of inspiration there. He was like, you're going to do it again. You're going to see the world by storm. Everyone's going to be scratching their heads. The fence are going to be kicking off, all that kind of stuff. And, and it did. It did happen. Um, but in terms of other bits I was good at, like I had a really good, you know, top speed. Um, and being able to hold that consistently. Um, so whereas, you know, Phil Hines is more of a, um, our chef described it as a pump and squirt kind of guy. <laughs> um, you know, he gets up to speed, then he dies. I can, it takes me longer to get up to speed. I don't get quite to the same top speed, but I can hold it for ages. God. Ages in spinning context, like 40 seconds. Um, so it's been, re- you know, it's really interesting hearing this and getting to where, you, you know, to where you've got. Um, but, uh, you know, and I don't want to take it to a dark side mm. of the of the podcast, but obviously this wasn't without its negatives. Mm-hmm. This this pursuit of ambition because you did an article on BBC which I read, which I found really inspiring. By the way, um, you know I suffered, still do suffer. Um, when did you? When did things? Would you say started to maybe get a little bit dark? When did the when did the black dog kind of rear its ugly head? So I'd, I'd say once once we'd won, I felt euphoria like I've never felt in my entire life. And Did you go out on the piss or what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, mate, like that kind of, it's, it's important to describe this level of euphoria because it's, it's, it's actually something I probably don't want to experience again. You know, it's that kind of it's thing. it's not sustainable. Yeah, it's like when people win the lottery, it's like... You just want to chase it. They go ballistic. Yeah. Like, and everything's fine. Everything's amazing. And then, but there's, there's a there's a caveat to that, which is you have to come back down. Of course you do. Yeah. And it's dangerous, isn't it? Yeah. Um. But literally, like, you could be hit with anything, like tax bill. Someone could punch you in the street. You could get mugged, and you'd be like, it doesn't matter. I'm Olympic champion. Who cares? And um, you go out in the piss. You think, you think all your problems have been solved. Um, but what slowly started to creep in was that I'd been using cycling as the ultimate distraction. Um, Because in the lead up to the Olympics, it's a mindset that is really hard to describe. You you become so anal and so particular about the smallest things. I remember having an argument with my girlfriend because I didn't want to come down and stay at her house because she didn't have an orthopedic pillow and it was a different mattress. That, That... That that doesn't shock me. That 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 I would get that would piss me off. Yeah, and, and you and you start, but you start sacrificing elements like that. Like I'm, I miss my, my one of my best mates asked him asked me to be best man at his wedding. I Fucked said no. Off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and which really, if you if you if you looked at those two things you've just said, yeah, a normal person, you know, that's almost illegal. Mm. What those actions are just disgraceful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's but in the pursuit of glory. They are absolutely 100% needed. But the, the crucial, I'm not sure if it's needed, but the crucial point is, is that that's the level of distraction that this pursuit offered because you could justify those Your actions. Yeah. Those actions. Yeah. You could say, I'm not going to that or doing this or going to a wedding or whatever because I've got bigger issues, mate. Um, being, I did be, feel like that for a bit. It's, it's a very, be, being an athlete can be a very selfish pursuit. Oh, yeah. It's, it's about taking 
And and this is kind of what I started to struggle with as well. I kind of started to think, you know, I've I've got I've I've looked after myself, but what am I doing for everyone else? What am I giving back to something that's given me so much? Is it all just about taking, 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 trying to get as much resource out of the team as possible, trying to go as fast as you can? Um, but ultimately, I lost that distraction, which was the Olympics, and start and started almost to go through a bit of a a mourning period because. I'd lost that distraction. I'd lost that pursuit. And for some reason, doing it again, A, didn't, possibly didn't seem worthwhile. Or, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't know why Tokyo wasn't the same kind of distraction as Leo was. Because you'd done it. Possibly, yeah. Because um, they, cause they, they say that um, when people hand in their thesis at Harvard or mm. something or whatever... Um, it's the journey, not the accomplishment. Mm. The journey's great. Once you've done it, boom. Yeah. Tyson Fury said that. Yeah. Once you've actually done it, that's when you 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 go downhill. Yeah. Um, and I, I started to notice some kind of like worrying symptoms, you know, slipping in. Like I remember, you know, driving. I mean, this kind of sums it up. Like, I was I was driving from Edinburgh after getting handsomely paid to do a nice event. I was driving back in my Porsche and I burst out into tears in the motorway. So I think that pretty much sums up to anyone that's like, success doesn't equal happiness. Like, I had everything I wanted and I was distressed. Because um, you weren't tackling the actual issue at hand. I, I, and at that point, truthfully, I didn't know what, what the issues were. Do you think you ever will? I, I feel like I've got a really good idea of what they are. And what's that? Uh, Sorry, I don't want to sound like Steve Peters here. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, it's, just, it's a passion of mine, is talking like... Yeah, for sure. Um, all, all kinds of little things started coming up. Um, you know, like one of the weirdest ones was like, when I was 10 years old, I was um, uh, swimming at a beach in Holland with my little brother. And um, one of my hobbies was to be, they called it rookies in Scotland. It was like lifeguards, yeah. amateur lifeguard kind of thing. And we got swept out into the sea. And I was like, don't worry, I'll get you back in and all this kind of stuff. And I couldn't. Um, and little uh, little insignificant things like that. And it was probably like near death enough. Like he was really panicking, I was really panicking. We got saved eventually. But little stuff like that. I was thinking like I'm a ship brother. Um, and then I couldn't really, my performances weren't living up to that Olympic expectation. So I was like, I'm a shit cyclist. And then I started feeling guilty for the sacrifices that I'd made for my sport. Um, so I was like, I'm a shit uh, friend, family member, friend. shit friend. Yeah. Um, and I, honestly, you know, for a, a number, number of months, started to wish that I, that I hadn't won anything. Kind of wish that it had been gone there and it had been a complete disaster so I, I could still be ignorant and still continue and still have that distraction. Arguably, it could have been a lot worse if, if I had that pressure cooker and things that went worse. But I, I genuinely, like, I, I didn't want the gold. I didn't want the silver. Um, and, and then it, it started impacting me on the bike as well. I'd be, I'd be uh, you know, like I started grasping at different solutions and coping strategies to try and remedy things. Um, you know, whether that was impulse purchases, yep. uh, drinking. Um, Painkillers. Uh, no, not painkillers. Um, indulging, indulging in the lows. Um, I don't know if it's something that you you've experienced, but I don't know if it's kind of this mantra. It's like sometimes if you have if you have a cry, you feel better afterwards. Yeah. So I was kind of sometimes I kind of got so far into my own head. I was kind of like, let's indulge it. Let's listen to "Sing Me to Sleep" by Morrissey yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Let's. That's let normal though. Going on moody walks, listening to "Dry Your Eyes" by the streets. That's quite. I think that's important. Yeah. Because you're allowing yourself to grieve. It was. It was the. Let's just say it was the locations where that was happening was becoming increasingly dangerous. Um. And yeah, you're I was almost just lost. Fl flirting with. <laughs> I don't want to say romanticizing with the danger, but mm. there is a turn on for that. It's yeah. fucked up. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. there is a very, there's a dark side to us all. Yeah. And it's so honest of you mm. to be how you've been. Mm. Um, but you're not alone with those thoughts because I've had those. And it is, it's easier to flirt with negative, weird, awful thoughts than it is to be positive. 
yeah. it's kind of comforting to be like, um, I've never had suicidal thoughts. Mm. I've been in some really bad places. But I've kind of thought, yeah, and there's a comfort in that, mm. which is re- which is really disturbing. Yeah, and, yeah. I I I I was genuinely kind of thinking. Um, I was in so much pain that I, I didn't want to. I didn't want to continue. I didn't. I didn't. And and what's more, I thought everyone would be better off without me. Yeah, that's fucking. Nah, that's just. But there's there was there was one thing that stopped me. Um, and I, I'm not sure why, but I've always been, I've always been very close to my granny. Like yeah. very, yeah. So my mum broke her arm when I was a baby. And I don't know whether it's just that, uh, skin on skin contact when you're young or something like that, but we've always been very close. And, um, in the, in those darkest moments, um, what stopped me was her. Why? Because I couldn't, because because she's she made everything better. She she was that blanket. I'm not sure about because I I probably actively avoided her at that time, actively avoided her. But the the amount of care and how much how much she cares for me and and all my cousins were all boys like how much she loves us and how much she she's quite innocent as well. Like you know she was she was a stay at home wife went to economics college and all that kind of like I'm probably not doing her justice she's got a lot more to her than you know if there's something wrong she can always pick up on it but I just I just couldn't do it to her yeah I just couldn't I just couldn't picture her being upset and I knew that was the one thing I could hold on to was and and I feel guilty about this now because I'm like obviously my mum and my brother and dad and everyone else would be devastated but I was like I, I she was the one that really I was like she couldn't get over it Possibly, I don't know. It was it was a str- it's it's a strange place to be in. But she was the one that just just the idea of her being upset and distraught was enough. Yeah, yeah. It's it, it's really inspiring to- hearing you you know hearing you talk so openly. And you know you're not alone with those thoughts. Mm. You're really not alone. And look, who am I to say that? You probably heard it from bigger and better people. Um, but um, well, I mean, it, it doesn't matter to me. It's like I, no. I, it's cathartic. It's it's nice. Well, it's not nice, but it's um, no, it is. It's, it's cathartic good. to speak to people about it. Of course, it is. It's so important. It is so so so. Like I was saying about me and Josh, you know, yeah. we um, we uh, we've struck up a relationship again, a, f- a friendship. Mm. You know, we've both had problems with um, drugs, alcohol, um, fucking each other over. Um, but it's so nice if you can just. I um. It was Saturday morning, and uh, on the Saturday morning, I like to go and get a coffee from the coffee shop around the corner. And I went at half nine a.m., which is good for me to get up at that time. I'm making progress because mm. uh, I was sleeping in for a long time for about three years of my life. Spinning is good for you, then. We don't start before ten. Really? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I saw all the lads mm. cycling. Mm. They all were meeting. That's where they meet at half nine. Um. And I still, still, still can't let go of my past. Like, I just wish it would fuck off. I, I saw them all, Barris, Tom Barris, um, all five of them. And I just felt so fat and, you know, what am I doing? I'm just getting a coffee and going home and getting back into bed. Like, I still beat myself up. I think I think that's what the recovery has started to look like for me, though. It's like uh, go, going from a stage where I wanted to undo winning Olympic medal. I'm proud of it now, and whether I like it or not, I I I was a cyclist for a long period of my life. I will always be known as a as a cyclist. It's about trying to offer people more than that, I guess. I, I'm so glad you've said that because I feel like you know I said to you earlier. Like this past, since this illness, I've kind of it's the best I've eaten for about twenty days now. Mm. I haven't drunk for twenty days. Mm. It's the best I've felt. Um, you know, I'm wearing a t-shirt today. I wouldn't normally do that. I'd, mm. I'd hide myself. Um, you know, I still still don't look at myself in the mirror. I still don't do reflections. But maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe I'm just slowly. 
but I, I still can't really ride a bike. I'm still, that's still just not pleasurable. Does that make okay, sense? Yeah, it's not pleasurable. Yeah, yeah. No, of course it does. I mean, like... I, I, someone I, said to me, because I was supposed to meet up with Gabs and Josh yesterday. Yeah. 10 a.m. Mm. No, 11 a.m. That's a decent time. Mm. Uh, sent a message. I didn't even send a message to Josh because it's easier to avoid someone. It? It's easy just to ignore. I think there's two things there. It's like, and and it's a journey I've been through as well. Because to put on the kit, yeah, yeah, to get the bike, yeah, still there's something not letting me do that. But the other thing is, is that's okay. Like when I when I stopped training, I remember thinking like, oh, I've I've said I'm going to go to the gym this morning, and um, no ambition. It was it was raining outside. I didn't feel like it, and I was starting to get ready, and I had to catch myself to say like, this isn't this is a choice now. You can choose not to go. And that was quite empowering in a way, actually. And and the other point is going back to the bike as well. It's like that. I've been through a whole journey where it became an escape. It became something I loved to becoming something I hated where I was getting intrusive voices when I was training, um, destructive voices. Uh, I'd purposefully actively avoid it um, to know it's something that I love, but I do it on my terms. I do it when I want to go for a cycle. Yeah. That's, that's empowering. And that's the difference between being a pro or like a keen amateur to, to I guess, a similar position that me and you are in. Like, realise it's a choice and don't feel guilty for not going out. It's your choice. So glad you said that because I, about a month ago, I was trying to, like, go ride five days a week. No, come, it's arbitrary. It's pointless. Life on, doesn't work like that. Come on, Tom. Yeah. Even if it's just half an hour, you've got to ride. Fa- and then I got ill, you know, the, yeah. I got ill. I haven't ridden since. And do you know what? I'm only going to ride now if the feeling, mm. it shouldn't be that hard. Yeah. It shouldn't take me four coffees, another hour, or no, watch another episode of this and I'll go out in the afternoon. Oh, no, no, um, I, I'll do that. I'll go on the turbo. It shouldn't be that hard. Mm. It should just be, I want to ride. Yeah. And I'm only going to ride if it's like, I actually fucking want to. Yeah. Yeah, you don't need to. You don't need <laughs> it to. It doesn't have to be a whole morning of contortion and, and self you know, oh, I want to get the fuck away from that. No, I mean, let's be honest, mate. It's like, unless unless you're targeting like an Ironman or something, it's a choice. It's a hobby. Because it's not, like, riding's not that easy. It's not that pleasurable. Yeah, but I mean, like... <laughs> it's I, not like going to a nice warm gym where there's attractive girls to look at. <laughs> or, no, but do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I've had to I've had to mould that myself. It's like I I don't I don't ride with a Garmin. I very rarely go out with a root in mind. I don't actually often go out with people. I do it on my own terms. That's what I like. I've been I've been measured enough in my life. Don't yeah, need it. I, I'm, do you know what I really love that? That's really helpful. Might me stop. For, might stop for a pint. Might not. Yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine? Do you know what? I saw a guy while I was queuing for the coffee. Mm. Another cyclist came and you and you got two cans of IPA. Yeah. I was like. That's how you make it pleasurable. That's that's the essence of cycling. It's about getting lost. It's about and you, being out for yourself, taking a right turn if you don't know where it goes. That's that's the whole. That's the freedom of cycling to 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 stick to these arbitrary ideas of like faster, you know, longer, faster, hard. longer, harder. Like that's fine. That's got a place, but it depends what you actually want. Like, what do you want? Do you want it to be enjoyable or do you want it to be a pursuit? Yeah, still working that one out. Yeah. <laughs> And it takes time, mate. It's it's it, like there's no there's no harm in it. But I'd say you know if you're struggling for motivation, this goes for anyone. If you're struggling for motivation, do something that you enjoy. Well, I've, I've got a camera. Yeah. Um. That I've, I've been I've started taking. I really like urbanism. Yeah, yeah. Brutalism is my favorite. Yeah. That, <laughs> got this book. I just I, I just love it. Yeah. I abs I love on on night time. Yeah. Uh, me and Amy will drive around Leeds mm. or Hartlepool Middlesbrough at night and just take pictures of like grim. But I love it. Mm. Really, you know, really hideous bus stations. Yeah, or the um, <laughs> there's a red light district area in yeah. Leeds which is legalised, mm. and we'll just drive around there. Yeah, and just the sights you see are just so, you know, I don't know what it is. I don't know what the appeal of of it being harder. Mm. You know, I, I don't want to look at nice landscapes anymore. I don't mm. really want to look at the countryside. Yeah, I want to look at you know. 1960s car park in Newcastle yeah. where Get Cart was filmed or I've got a similar take on that because like a common question is like where's your favourite place to go to and a lot of cyclists would say like Australia and New Zealand but for me that's far too sanitised it's yeah. clean yeah it's not interested it's not like my favourite place to go is South Africa there's a bit of edge there's a bit of something going on and I'm not I'm not condoning what happens there 
but that's reality. Like gated communities, all that kind of stuff. It's it's an escape. I, I like I like the kind of realism and the brutalism of of the world. It's 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 part of what makes us who we are. Of course, it is. Um, We've gone off track a bit. No, <laughs> um, we. You know, I've been to counselling and therapy. Um, and you mentioned earlier about persistence with with that. Do you want to kind of touch on that a little bit, if you feel comfortable? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, to be honest, it didn't it didn't work for me for a year and a half, um, and I, I kind of invested a lot in it in it helping. So you know, at BC, we all at British Cycling, you always think like we got excellence and everything. We got the best people, best medical care, all that kind of stuff. So went to this really fancy clinic in Altrincham called Priory. Um and if anything I was just getting worse like it was continuing to sink was starting to have mental breakdowns at competitions and stuff like that um, my social anxiety was getting worse because I, I had this pressure to put a brave face on it um, the medication was just going up and up and up with you know no reasonable result um, but that's when I stumbled, well, not stumbled. Um, it was at the Commonwealth Games where um, I probably had my worst kind of breakdown, I guess. Um, I, I got, uh, I finished really badly in the queue and I was kind of like Olympic champion, never done that well at Commonwealth Games, want to try and do something here. Um, and I was in the track centre and I was just kind of like paralysed for about an hour with intense kind of grief and emotion and depression, I guess. And, and there was a huge amount of pressure because I couldn't show that. Because you've got, you know, a couple thousand people around you. You've got opposing teams either side. You've got your own team there, which you want to put a brave face on. So I just, I just froze there for about an hour, just slowly getting more and more distraught inside my own head. God, you know what? I know exactly what that feeling's like. Uh, it just trapped because I didn't, I didn't know where I could go. Like in Manchester, we came up with a protocol where I knew where I could go. It's not like you can go into bed. No. And just turn the lights. Yeah. And I'm like, if I stand up, I'm going to burst into tears. Yeah. So I started texting people. Started texting my mate back in the UK, started texting my psychologist, started texting my doctor just to try and get someone to, to come over and take me away. Um, and, the, and then eventually got the Scottish team doctor and, and things were really bleak. Like they were advising emergency medication um, to get me through the night and the next couple of days they wanted me to pull out. Um, declined, declined both of that. Um, saw my mum the next day and, and that was that was the real turning point because my mum knew I was getting therapy she knew that I was getting medication um, but that was the first when she came and saw me at the team house the next morning that was the first time she'd ever seen me like that and as we get on to talking about Steve Peters later you can chuck all the kind of psychometric tests you want at someone but if someone looks depressed they look they are depressed a lot of the time it's like you know and especially if you've got like a mother's instinct or a family instinct and she looked at me and she burst into tears. And so did I. Um, and I think at that moment, she she knew how, how bad things had got and how much I'd been masking it. And at that point, I had no energy at all to hide it. Um, so, but then, you know, this uh, declined the medication, I had a few days off and then eventually got back to do the kilo. Um, and then I, I got a medal, which is what I wanted. I got a Commonwealth Games medal. Never had that in my career. Um, was missing from my Palmares. And um, I was I was in tears underneath the visor. I'd won a medal, but I was in tears. I was waving away and all this kind of shit just to try and keep the you illusion said, up. You said that in the article, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. I was, I was, I just wanted to run away. I just wanted to, you know, escape. Um, I took the emergency medication, went and saw the journalists who asked me where I'd been. Luckily, my coach had covered for me and said I had a stomach bug, which I'd forgotten about when I was doing the interviews. So I was like, yeah, it's all fine. Um, and then what happened there was the team psychologist who had been working with, uh, she's now the, the Aussie team psychologist. We, we were doing really well. Um, we weren't making progress, but we weren't necessarily going backwards. Like It was just someone I could speak to. Um, but she just got a new job with the Aussies and the team had decided that she had to leave the team immediately. So that I had that support network was pulled out from underneath my feet. And in the meantime, I'd stopped going to the priory because it wasn't working for me. So I just felt totally alone. And like, I went to the team and they were like, don't worry, we've got cover for the psychologist. And I'm, I didn't have the energy to argue with them, but I'm like, I, you can't just cover this position. It's like, let her let her see out her term and then let her leave or whatever. And then I was like, I spoke to the psychologist and was like, 
if because she kept in contact with me even though she shouldn't have because she's that's a good, good person that's good um, and she was like, you know, what could, I, I'm scared about leaving you. Like, what could we do to make this happen? And I was like, I really, I really like the idea of going to see Steve Peters. Um, because when I was younger, I got misdiagnosed with cancer. I had a big lump on one side of my neck. And everyone thought, that, you know, this was the end of my career and all the rest of it. And was getting all these tests. And Steve was still a team psychologist at the time. And I went to go and see him. And he went, you don't have cancer, you're fine. Just keep training which was a major stab in the dark, but he's immensely well-educated. Um, so for all these years, I had this kind of savior mentality attached to him. Um, so I thought I'd go and see him. And what I've realized now is the reason I wanted to go and see him was because he could tell me everything was fine and I could keep training. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I asked the team for funds to go and see him. They denied it. Luckily, the Scottish Institute of Sport gave me some cash. So I went to go and approach him. And um, he went and saw me, he went to his house, spent about two hours there. And within five minutes he said to me you are extremely unwell and you need to look after yourself and after two years of you know probably about a year and a half of treatment at that point that's when I started taking it seriously because of just what you said yeah because it was it was the opposite of what I was expecting yeah you wanted him to say things all right yeah and just keep going man up um and then from then that's when we started making the progress. There's was, there was quite a few speed bumps along the way. Yeah. Not helped by the team. We don't need to go into that. Um, but Therapy's not easy, man. No, but it was... You've got to open that door and you've got to want to walk through it. Yeah, but I think it's just a, it's, it's a message about persistence. Like I, I found Steve, he was able to tap into that mindset that had been trained in because I had had these skills like I'd been to the Olympic Games I'd competed well I'd, I'd done things you know from a from a sports psychology point of view I was set like I was I had so many skills in that regard like worked in it for years he was the only guy I found who managed to tap into that existing skill set and make it work for me in a personal context and that was what was so effective and um yeah he he, he saved me and as well as my mum giving up her sabbatical in Australia and moving back to Manchester before I could even tell her not to um, I built up the support network, got amazing support from Steve and, you know, haven't had suicidal thoughts for the best part of a year, year and a half. Fantastic. Unbelievable. Um, you know, it's, it's still, it's, there's still an element of, you know, still low days, still low weeks, but there's always, that's always going to happen. But at least we're not, we're, we're out of that danger zone. Yeah. Yeah. Which is the most important thing for my friends, for my family, for myself. Um, and I feel better about myself. I'm, I've I've got to terms with the fact that I'm Olympic champion. I'm proud of that, but it's not. It doesn't make me who I am. I've got so much more to offer than just that. Like I'm a good brother, I'm a good partner, a good son, good grandson, all that kind of stuff. Personable, likable, intelligent, all that kind of thing. And that's that's what I base my self worth on now. And that's not at the mercy of a stopwatch. Yeah, that is. Um takes time to get to that oh it took ages i mean we're talking about the, the dysmorphia element like it took ages for steve for me to be able to say to steve i'm not ugly you know it's like he was like you know what do you how do you, how do you think you look like you're starting off the real basic because most of it was attributed to cycling so he was like how do you think you look and i was like fine like not great there's better people out there all this kind of stuff you're uh, just like me <laughs> you're just you're just a better looking version of me <laughs> yeah I'll stop it thank you um but but he broke it down he was like you know when you look in the mirror do you see Quasibodo? and I was like well no that's ridiculous I and, do yeah <laughs> but it, 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 it does take time it took months of building that up and it's just little baby steps where you're kind of like I've got something to offer to the world maybe it'd be better if I stuck around and did you, would you drive and see him or was it over the phone or Zoom or? Start cycling to go and see him. Um, From Manchester. Yeah. It's not that fast the peaks, is it? Uh, it took me quite a while at that time. <laughs> but yeah. He seems like a nice guy. He seems like a proper, he seems like, um, well, fair play to anyone who can fix, who can, you know, who can make, whoever, if someone can make someone feel better, mm. then like fair play. Yeah, that, no, that is just break it down that's a good thing and and it, you know i think the the thing is is like i've always been known as like a good debater like jan van eyden once said to me it's like because he got fed up of me coming up with articulate points against whatever point he was making so he was like i don't want you to argue with this point i'm just going to tell you this 
and and that happened quite often. And um, I started playing those games with Steve. So I'd, he'd ask me a question and I'd just ramble off onto something else. But he was super strict. He was like, that's not what I asked you. Give me an answer to this question. It's probably the same in like a lot of therapy. It's like he was really good at pushing when he needed to push and giving TLC when he needed to do that. Wow. And, and, and you know, some points when I would go off the rails and I had to get someone to pick me up in the middle of the night because I'd, I'd got myself intoxicated to the point where I wasn't a threat to myself. Um, I remember one time he, he said, like, you know, you're 27 years old. What are you doing having your mum pick you up in the middle of London at four in the morning? And I was like, what? I didn't expect that. I was like... That's hard. I was, I was like... Well, like, like, do you think I wanted to, to do that? <laughs> well, no, but he... he, he, un, he It was the tough love because it's like we'd done all the work and he realised that I could take a kick. And oh, it was... still unsettles me, that. And it was... No, it's, it's very specific to the patient... Um, therapist relationship therapeutic relationship yeah, yeah. Um, but it worked for me like he, he knew he knew when I was in a position to take tough love and it, and it wasn't just as simple as like what the hell are you doing it, there was a lot more deconstructing to that but he wanted me to realise to start with that I shouldn't yeah. be putting other people in that situation I have to become self-sufficient and I have to get better wow what a guy Fuck. and then the article the BBC article ended as a a whole world has opened up in front of you. Mm. Um, you've opened up. Is it a coffee house or is it a coffee? It's a little uh, pop up in in Edinburgh. So we're we're in we're in another store, and um, it's good. It keeps me like one of the things I realise I need to do, which is a trigger. Is if I'm doing nothing, it's a trigger. I just got too many of my own thoughts. Um, I'm getting better at lying on a beach, but it's not my bag. Um, so yeah, it's been great to put tons of energy into that. We've got a partnership with Andy's Man Club as well. So we're, we're doing something really productive. They're doing um, a lot of good work. They do a lot of good work. Um, so that's been really productive. Still still trying to give back to sport in like a, a governance perspective. So I'm on the UK Anti-Doping Athletes Commission, BOA Athletes Commission. Um, just got a new job, which I can't talk about yet. But things are moving forward and, and, and it's positive. You know, it's um, it's been a really long journey but it's it's I, I I'm really optimistic about the future. It's amazing that I feel like you. I feel like you're a free, two or three year ahead of me. Mm. But it's really good to kind of look up to. It it will get there. That's the thing. It's like if if you, I I don't know if I was different because I was always most productive about getting help when I was low, and I don't know if you're the same. But and I think it's quite unusual because when I was high. Not high, but high. I'd ignore that that had ever happened. I was like, I was upset last month. That's all gone. Let's just crack on and forget about it. You know, don't need to get any help. Don't need to make any progress. All that kind of stuff. What I, what my, my what Steve helped me do with that tough realization that I was unwell was to you only make progress when you're feeling good. Like when you're kind of high, you don't really make that much progress. But when you've got that window of feeling good, that I felt that's when I started moving forward and. I guess I was just kind of resolute to the fact that if I'm going to stick around, like this is a choice. There's, there's, a, you know, I want to stick around. I know in my heart of hearts I want to stick around. It's a choice to feel like this or not. Mm. And, that, and that's quite empowering that it's a choice and there is help out there. And that, and if you are persistent and you, and you do continue, you know, you need to... It doesn't take time though. It doesn't matter. It might it might be yoga. It might be diet. It might be doing a headstand. There's 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 something that will help you feel better. Because the dark days can sometimes be so. Your mind can trick you, man. Yeah. Your mind can just be stay in bed. Yeah. Eat shit. Mm. Do drugs. Mm -hmm. Drink. Mm. Don't. Why do you want to go to the gym? Why are you thinking about joining the gym? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Why are you doing a podcast, Tom? <laughs> like my mind today driving yeah. down here is why are you still doing this? It's sad. Well, because it's a fantastic thing to do and lots of people listen to it. And that you, and you know that's the go-to answer. You know how many people this has helped. And deep, deep down you do. Yeah, I do, but... Like the, it's like I can see people going, fuck it, he put another post on Instagram. It gives a fuck. That, that's still bigger than the good. Yeah. I'm working on that. You know what the amazing thing is about valuing myself based on who I am as a person is that you quite quickly realize that people who don't do the same aren't worth it and that includes the people that are doing it on Instagram I've dealt with a lot like well one especially toxic person in my life truthfully I kind of feel sorry for them yeah I do because 
Because what what has happened in their life that they have nothing that little empathy and, yeah. and that little compassion and what a shit life that must be. But invest your time in the good people. We know who they are. Disregards the the noise. Disregards the the other bits. And, and you know, I, I'm not one for like an Instagram quote saying like surround yourself by positive people. Yeah, I, I don't do that. I love negative people as well. Like Phil Hines is is a very negative man sometimes, but. But I know that when shit gets serious, he's got my back, 100%. Because I, I know who he is as a person. Well, this has been this has been a lot more than I thought this was going to be, this podcast. It's been a lot more than um, you've really opened up. Um, you know, I didn't think you were going to be this kind of uh, luciferous bringer of mm. light. I thought it was going to be quite um, Sumerian. I thought it was going to be quite grey. Not grey. <laughs> I thought. I thought. It, I, I didn't think it was going to go down this avenue. It's mm. been really, really, uh, in, like yeah. It's been really inspiring. Your story is really inspiring. Um, I really hope the coffee. Five rings, is it? Yeah, five rings. We're online. <laughs> Little uh, plug there. I hope five rings really kind of you know. I'm mm. doing a bit of a coffee thing as well and. Who who doesn't love coffee? Yeah, we'll do a little bag swap. Yeah. <laughs> I should have brought mine. Yeah. Um uh and you know, you got some good news about a job. Uh you're only Manchester, we should keep in touch. Mm. We probably won't. People don't. But oh, don't. <laughs> if, you're, if, if you're in town and never anything's open, pop by. Uh, Manchester. Um <laughs> I do like Manchester actually. I do like Manchester Deansgate where uh, the bite rooms was. Yeah. Good yeah. old good old Phil Griffiths. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a hero. But I mean, but I mean, that's that's my take home message is like value people and who they are and surround yourself with the ones that are good. It, do, it doesn't mean people who are blindly optimistic. They do my head in. Good, good people is what people need. Build that support network. Realize what you're doing has worth. Realize what you're doing is helping people. You're moving the conversation forward, and that's something to hold on to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because I could just be at home, being a narcissist. What use would that be? Being a nihilist, just, just. At least, which, at least, you know, because you do your podcast, at least talking is, is thinking. Yeah. And thinking is progress. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, look, Callum, you got to get back to Manchester. Yep. <laughs> um, it's been, it's been awesome. Um, and I hope your podcast carries on, you know, more people that talk, more people that share stories. Nothing better than the spoken word. So mm. keep doing what you're doing, man. And um, yeah, I hope all the best. Thanks a lot. Cheers. See you soon. The Yorkshire Grit Podcast. Subscribe now on iTunes and Spotify.